I can't see you. Um. It doesn't matter. We really just need the audio, but. Yeah, I don't know. There's I don't, a... I don't. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There you are. Ah. <laughs> now I can see ah. you. Yes, what's up? Let me adjust the volume here. So, I'm not uh, dressed. What? Yeah, I know I'm like in my underwear, so let me at least put pants on. I should say we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should have was, started with that. I was going to, but you looked like you were gonna say something and so I just well, I'd let you finish. Well, just edit that out. <laughs> we're pregnant. Bro, do you even live? I can't eat another one bite. is usually bigger than the other. It tastes awful. This won't hurt a Wait, bit. Why is it leaking? Did you Whoa. hear that? That's that well, was not awful. there yesterday. Have a second of it's totally my natural hair color. Deadly. I'm Terrell. And I'm Iris. Welcome to Health Science for the rest of us a podcast where we take a super practical look at the body, its shenanigans, and the world of fascinating ways we try and keep it healthy. This definitely won't replace a trip to your doctor's office, but it may help you make heads or tails of how to live in your body better. More important than that, this podcast will help you look like a total badass at your next Facebook debate. You did it again. We can edit that later. Let's Let's do do this. this. Since last week, something amazing happened. This little podcast cracked its first 1,000 plays. And it would not have been possible without you putting up with our hijinks. So before we start this week's episode, I just want to thank you for your interest in this show. It's truly a labor of love, and I hope you're having as much fun listening as we are. Yeah, I subscribe to my own podcast. What of it? I hope you're ready for something that might feel really unusual, because for this week's adventure, my very dear friend and special co-host, Richard, gave up a chunk of his Saturday to talk about guinea pigging. If you've never heard of guinea pigging before, it's okay. All you really need to know coming into this episode is that there is a community of people who make their living getting paid to be studied in clinical trials, and the experiences they have might leave you scratching your head. If none of that made sense, just kick back and relax because we're about to take you on quite the ride. Normally, when we have a guest co-host, this is about the time when we ask you to write to us to tell us if you like the special co-host enough for us to bring them back for a future episode. But as you'll hear soon, Richard has already invited himself back for an episode on the planet of the apes, which I didn't know we'd be doing until he announced it to me. Well played, sir. In a moment, we will cut away to my talk with Richard. But before we do, I want to mention that during our chat, we did spend a few minutes talking about animal testing and scientific research. We did not dig into this very deeply, and we did not talk about any graphic details. But we also did not talk much about issues of animal welfare and clinical trials designed to help human beings. 
if this topic is important to you, be on the lookout soon when we explore animal testing in a future episode. In the meantime, though, here comes guinea pigging. When I first started this podcast and you found out that I was going to have a podcast, we had talked about you participating on one of the episodes. And so I sent you a few different topics and asked you, you know, just look over these topics and see if there's one that you would want to be part of. And right away, you jumped right on this guinea pigging thing. How'd you, what was it about the guinea pigging thing that stood out? Um, it's, it's, it's like an interesting title because I'm, some of the other ones I, well, the one, the other one that stood out for me was five second rule, but I think my automatic like gut knee jerk reaction to five second rule isn't, it's the game, you know, the game five second rule. So, and I love that game. Yeah. You, you, you look, you look confused. Well, what, We'll talk about it later. But this particular one, human guinea pigs, it just seemed like it seemed kind of awesome. because I'm just like, all right, that seems like this, this really cool topic that people don't really talk about. And it sounds kind of science fiction-y, too. So I'm, all, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. Um, and I, that's, that just seemed really interesting. So I'm like, all right, let's, let's do it. And I did not prepare. Uh, that was my next question. Did you cheat and look up stuff about guinea pigging even after I said don't do that? Nope, I, I am being completely and utterly honest with you. One, I, I, I am going to do what you tell me to do because apparently that adds to the experience where you are the smart person and I'm the uneducated one. And also, I just didn't have time. And the truth comes out. Yeah, hey, well. I'm going to edit out that part about you calling me the smart person. <laughs> uh, but you didn't even cheat after I accidentally sent you, speaking of me being the smart person, after I accidentally sent you the article on the topic that I told you not to read, you still didn't cheat? Didn't cheat because, because you told me not to, and I thought, that, I thought that was a test. Really? No, I really didn't. <laughs> no, I totally butt-dialed that to you. I was trying to text it to myself, and your number was on top of mine, and it went to your phone. Nope, I didn't look. I haven't opened that article at all. I had I haven't looked anything up. Okay, this is gonna be good then. Uh, I hope so. So okay, so since you didn't cheat, do you have any idea about what guinea pigging might be? Um, I'm assuming it's maybe some of those clinical trials that they they have for people, or you know, like they you'll see them up at college campus, those flyers, and like, hey, you know, conduct some medical test or something like that. That's that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Or I, I hope it's something a lot more malicious. Well, you're in luck. So. <laughs> because it's it's juicy. It's really juicy. We're going to we're going to get all the juicy points. So for starters, just in case people don't know about clinical trials, it's like back in the day when we had treatments for things, when people got sick and we had an idea of what to tell them to get better. We would basically just say, you know, go to the witch doctor, get a rooster foot, hang it over your door and you should feel better. Or go eat, go eat uh, the, the hairball that an animal coughed up, that face you just made. This is a real thing. It's called a bezoar. People would go into the woods and get hairballs that animals coughed up and they would eat them so that they could get better. Okay. And, yeah, this is how... This is how we used to tell people to get well when they were sick. And the way that we knew that it was working is the person would either get better or they would not get better. 
and then we would say it was their fault. You must need to eat more basilars. That hairball was not good enough. <laughs> you need to eat more hairballs. But that was basically how we decided if something worked until we figured out, yeah, we need to get more systematic about this. And that's where clinical trials came from. You have a question yet? Well, no, it just kind of sounds like how they used to test whether people were witches or not. So they would throw them, yeah, they would throw them into water and say, okay, well, if you if you float, you're a witch and we'll kill you. If you drown, you weren't a witch and you're dead. So that kind of sounds like the same thing. Yeah, it's about the same, that same kind of mindset. We weren't very, we weren't super sophisticated in old timey times, but eventually we got our shit together and figured out that we can systematically test treatments. Well, well, hot damn, all right. Yeah, so today, uh, clinical trials have lots of different steps in them. They have what are called different phases and they involve different parts of a study. So you have some new treatment, and at some point you're trying to figure out if the treatment actually works. There's a point where you're trying to figure out if the treatment works any better than no treatment at all. There's things that happen after the treatment goes to market where you can test to see if it really works as well as you thought it would. But before any of that, the first stage is uh, what's called first in man phase first in man yes first in man is exactly what it sounds like it means that before first in man study happens the only other time this treatment has been tested has been in animals or in computer models or in test tubes things like that right okay this first stage is the first in man trial and usually these trials are really small They involve maybe like a dozen people. And at this point, all the researchers are really trying to figure out is what does this treatment do in the body? What does this treatment do to the body? And what does the body do to the treatment? So we're looking at things like if it's a drug, where in the body does the drug go? Does the body break this drug up into smaller chunks that become toxic? How long does it stay in your body? Do you poop it out or do you pee it out or do you vomit it out? These are the types of really basic things that we're trying to learn in these first in man studies. And this is where the volunteers come in. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) So the volunteers for first in man studies are not sick. They're not the type of people who would need the treatment that's being tested. They're just regular people who are considered healthy and they volunteer to try out these treatments so that we can figure out what happens <laughs> before we move to the next stage of research. And it's it's not a you're laughing, but it's not a super uncommon thing for people to do. You know, maybe your mom or your cousin or somebody had uh, breast cancer or something, and you decide that you would like to volunteer to help with research efforts to help develop new treatments for breast cancer. You know, that's not uncommon at all. Where this guinea pigging stuff comes in. That's that's the part I'm waiting for. Yeah, people do trial after trial after trial after trial. Not necessarily because they are super concerned about helping with research, but because they get paid to volunteer. Yes. So so wait a minute. The those first people in the first in man trial, which sounds so archaic, um, just the title of it. So those people. They're not paid. They're, they just walk right in off the street and just say, hey, put this drug in me. Everybody gets paid. 
Okay, great. Everybody gets paid. That that's important. That's important to know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in, you know, in in the event that you know, so is is it? What's what's the pay scale on on this? I'm 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 asking for a friend. <laughs> so the amount you get paid varies, right? So we said before these are healthy people, and they don't necessarily need treatments, but they want the money. So. Um, Usually, people get paid between $200 and $400 per day. Oh. And a lot of times, people will maybe do a study that requires more than one day. So that adds up for every day that they stay in the study. Some of these studies last weeks. Some of them last months. So it adds up. And if you do a study that involves something really unpleasant or something really intrusive like say rectal probing or biopsies or spinal taps you can get paid much more in fact uh, the biggest payout I saw was about $2,500 per person for a four week trial and they were being paid to test a medication that meant that they could not drink alcohol and what happened was (laughs) The people in the study agreed to be part of the study for a certain number of weeks. And then, for whatever reason, the study had to be extended over Christmas break. So the researchers said, okay, everybody, we're sorry. This is going to last a little longer than we thought. You can definitely be with your families for Christmas, but remember, don't drink any alcohol. You can't drink alcohol. So all the participants got together and had like a, <laughs> they had like a, like a petition that they signed. They actually renegotiated their fee with the researchers. They said, look, this is taking longer than you thought it would, and now you're saying we can't drink over Christmas. You need to pay us more money. They were able to negotiate up to $3,500. Oh, watch out now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So there can be some money made. It is arguably more than minimum wage if you are doing this full time. So so this sounds like some... Okay. So I'm getting the impression that just thinking about human nature in general, right? If you come out of these clinical trials that come out of these first, I'm just going to keep calling them first in man studies because it just sounds hilarious. But if you come out of those, right, is this a lucrative side hustle? Like, is this like driving for Uber? Can you just be a human guinea pig professional? Yes. Ah, So if you just do one trial, maybe here and there, you're considered a paid volunteer. You're not really considered a guinea pig or you're not considered to be guinea pigging until you decide this is your job. And for some people, it's not a side hustle. For some people, this is the only way they make money. Oh, wow. They just go around the country signing up for these studies, partly because they know that no treatment is going to be tested on them that hasn't already been tested on animals in a similar kind of setting. So if I have a diabetes drug that I tested in rats for 30 days, once the people come in to test this drug, they will never ever be tested for more than 30 days. Like I would never have them do something that I didn't already model with with animals. So there is some level of safety net there in terms of potential harm from doing this all the time just for money. Yeah. The other thing, too, is, you know, if you don't get sick or get side effects, it's not a terribly bad gig. So for some people, 
you know, there, there was a study where people came for three days, three straight days, and they had to get GI endoscopies twice a day. That's like when we stick a tube in you to Dang look inside. <laughs> oh, that was, that's so awful. I've had that done one time. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these people came and they stayed in private rooms like a hotel and they played video games and watched movies basically all day long. And the only time they had to do any actual participation in the study was maybe once in the morning when they had their their endoscopy and then in the afternoon when they had their endoscopy and those people made over uh two thousand dollars in three days to stay in a hotel like environment and let people do things to their body so essentially it's so essentially it's it's grand jury duty like you just have to stay for a long time and just endure some type of punishment and they take you yeah, and the word endure comes up quite a lot when people talk about the ethics of this yes. arrangement. Because you have people coming in and, you know, they, they assume that everything's going to be okay, that they're going to be safe, that they will be taken care of. Maybe they're coming in thinking that they're going to be part of something really exciting. You know, NASA did an experiment where they had people volunteer to lie on their backs at like a six degree angle for 54 straight days. Oh, because they're trying to figure out how to make the body tolerate long space trips for like if we go to Mars. So if you come in and you, you know, you're going to get paid and you know, you're going to be safe and be taken care of and you might help us get to Mars. And you get to stay in like a nice kind of hotel kind of situation. It doesn't sound too shabby. You know, that's pretty easy money, except except we don't really know how safe these people are. We don't really know how many people do this as a living. We don't really know how many people do more than one study at one time, which is probably bad to do. We don't know how many people get sick during these studies. We don't know how many people get kicked out of these studies. We basically don't have any working centralized system for keeping track of these people. And so it can be very difficult to tell how comfortable this kind of a lifestyle is. For one thing, if you get too sick and you can't finish the trial, a lot of times you don't get paid. You have Uh, to finish. You have to finish. Mm -mm. Or if you get kicked out for whatever reason, you probably don't get paid. If you manage... <laughs> what? I, no, I'm just saying, because it, it's interesting, because some of the things that you're saying are the things I've been writing in my notes here, and I just find it really interesting how there's no... Essentially, there's no governing body for this, so these are all independent studies conducted it, where you're testing on people, but so no one, no overarching, no big clinical trial uh, body is saying, hey, these are the rules and regulations for it, is what you're saying. Sort of. So we do have some government involvement for standards for government-run research or for research organizations that have to listen to the government. But in in a minute, we'll talk about how that's turned into this whole other thing. In the meantime, though, you know, there are private companies that volunteer to help track things like, you know, how many of these people get medical care from the research 
if they happen to get sick during the research, we have people, you know, organizations that say, hey, researchers, tell us all the data that you have about how many people get sick or injured or die during trials, and we'll keep it all in one big file so that we have this data. But the clinical researchers are not required to report to these organizations. And if they do report to the organizations, they're really just taking the word of the research participants. And the research participants are going to say what they need to say in order to stay in these trials. Because at this point, if you're part of this small community that knows that you can make $3,500 in three days for doing not very much um, in terms of labor... Aside from lying on your back, lying on your back for 54 days. Yeah. Yeah. But after a while, word (laughs) starts getting out, you know, people form their little groups. Hey, did you see that research study in Virginia? They're paying $4,000. I'm going down there and competition starts to build. They're competing over slots in the highest paying trials. All right. So, 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 oh my God. So there's a community there. And and now I'm envisioning all this. It's probably a bunch of people. They all know each other. Like it's probably regional. And these people come down like for in the DMV area and, you know, they walk into the, into the office and they go, Hey, Craig, Hey, Craig, you know, what are they trying today? And Craig says, Oh, I don't know. You know, and and I'm envisioning this now. See, I'm so glad I didn't do any research. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. But please, please continue. So now I'm also understanding why? Because I am the rest of us now. Uh-huh. That, that, that is how this goes. I am the rest of us. All right, go. Yeah. Tell me so, more. So there is a kind of culture that has grown up out of this idea of professionally volunteering for first in man trials. And uh, like I said, there isn't a centralized system that we can use to monitor how things are going. But the people in the community have started. Uh, there was a job zine that used to be po posted on the internet it's like a magazine called guinea pig zero where people would share yeah the people would share their experiences with different clinical trials and they would talk about things like yeah steer clear of that one at that company that just advertised on facebook because i did a study there and they made me wait seven hours to eat and then the food was cold or yeah you steer clear that one down south because they didn't pay us when they were supposed to, or they made us stay in a hotel, but but they made us stay in a dorm for a week, but they made us provide all of our own towels, or they didn't have good Wi-Fi, and so even though I'm hundreds of miles from my family to do this trial, I wasn't able to FaceTime with them like I was planning to. So they have these uh, these networks, and now they have apps also, I was just about to say it's like, it's like yeah. Yelp reviews. Well, there is no, there's still no Yelp, which is a big deal because in terms of sharing information about safety and about sanitary conditions and stuff like that, you do want that kind of information available. But they do have apps that are out now. So one of the apps is called Just Another Lab Rat. Oh my God. And it works with this other app called Study Scavenger. And so those apps will give you notifications when new studies become open for you to volunteer. But they also tell you stuff like, uh, is there TV? Is there Wi-Fi? Are there pool tables? Is there a swimming pool? How nice is the staff? Do people listen to your concerns? Uh, Do they care how fit you are? How tough is the screening to get into the trial? 
How can you make it so that they can't tell you really do smoke cigarettes and you want that $5,000 for that study (laughs) where they said no people who smoke can participate. So there is this sort of, um, I don't want to call it an underworld because I think that's too strong a word, but there is definitely a culture and a community among these people who make their living from volunteering their bodies so that researchers can do stuff to them. And these people, I'm assuming, don't know going in. So, for instance, like we talked earlier about how, you know, if they tested something on, um, well, you talked, I'm listening, um, about how they test, they may have tested something on animals for 30 days. But these people going in don't really know the long-term effects of anything that's going to test them. So they don't know how this might affect them five years down the line. Mm-hmm. And so, and they just keep doing it. Oh, my gosh. And to an extent, we don't know either because, like we said, there is no one central database where we can look and see what happens to these people after they leave the studies. So if you think about now that there's not 100% guarantee that you won't get sick and that people are competing to use their bodies for science and that you don't get paid if you don't finish... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you have to endure maybe things like vomiting or poking and prodding. You, you're probably starting to be able to paint a picture of the type of person or the types of people volunteering for this work. And I won't say anything because they may or may not be listening to this podcast. Well, just if you had to, if you had to generalize a population that would be more likely to do this as a living. College students. Okay, college students, and who else? Um, um, okay, okay, college students, but there's an overlap between college students and people who are disenfranchised or maybe underemployed or low income. Yes, that is exactly the type of person that we are seeing participate in these studies seven times more likely than other people. So people who are considered poor or who are uninsured, meaning they don't have health insurance, those people are seven times more likely to sign up for these studies. Um, Also, though, people, like you said, who don't have jobs are more likely to sign up for these studies, and undocumented immigrants are more likely to sign up for these studies. Basically, people you would consider vulnerable because they want the money, you know, they're willing to do what is required to get the money, and they are not necessarily in the position to say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't need this money. You know, maybe they absolutely do need the money. Maybe they need that $400 so that they can make their mortgage that month or buy their groceries or do whatever people need to do with money, you know. But it, yeah, gets, yeah. it gets pretty nasty. Uh, in 1996, the drug company <laughs> Eli Lilly got in trouble because they were going to a local homeless shelter where people who were struggling with alcoholism were going for shelter and they were going there to retru- to recruit people for these studies. And when they got in trouble, they said, well, the people at the shelter consented to join these studies because they want to help society. But critics uh. would say, yeah, if you're desperate, <laughs> you're not really consenting. You're just... And- yeah, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't it wasn't presented to them like that. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and if you're ill and if you're in a homeless shelter, even if someone does give you some 17-page document that explains everything, 
you might not understand what's in there or yeah. you might just sign it anyway. It's like those credit card applications they give you in college where, you know, you're like, hey, and they give you like a little gift and say, hey, you can get $20 and you just signed up for this. And next thing you know, you're $6,000 of credit card debt. Yep. Yep. Except in this situation, maybe you have explosive diarrhea and you're struggling with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on, on, on top of all the other things that, you know, you're going, especially, you know, you're talking about them essentially exploiting homeless, you know, homeless people, which is kind of crummy. Well, it's very crummy, actually. Um, and it's not it's not charitable. It's just to help the it's to help these these pharmaceutical. Co- well, are these always pharmaceutical companies doing it? Or, We're getting ahead that, of that, ourselves. Eh, okay, I'm going. I'm going to scratch that part of my notes out. But, but you okay. are, <laughs> you are definitely <laughs> on the right track. Um, but before we get into that, which I have listed under part of the reason guinea pigging can be so shitty, is that um, one of the other reasons that people think guinea pigging is not fair to the people who volunteer is because. The whole point of volunteering for some kind of study is that you should be able to benefit from whatever treatment gets developed from that study. But if you can't afford the treatment Mm -hmm. while you're volunteering, then you're not really getting the full benefit, the full benefit that other people who do have money will get once this treatment is developed and they can just pay their copay or pay out of pocket. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's juicy. It's almost like the rest of us get yeah. benefit from drugs and treatments that were tested on the bodies of the poor. So it's essentially the American way. I might have to edit that, but we could say <laughs> we could call it the capitalist way. Right. Because Ameri- the American way and the capitalist way are not necessarily the same thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that now. Okay. <laughs> I I was just gonna say I was gonna say yes. That's the it's I would it's essentially the capitalist way. Yeah. Right. So it's uh it's weird and it's only part of the reason guinea pigging can be shitty. But before we move on to shitty, we had talked about how much money people get paid and how they can earn quite a bit of money in a little bit of time. How much money do you think you would need in order to be part of one of these studies? How much money? Like, what, what would, what would, what it would take? make it worth my while? Yeah, what would it take? Oh, uh, boy. Um, I would at least have to be able to pay a bill. Um, and, you know, my, my financial needs are different than everyone else's. But I, I'm looking at some of the numbers that you have given me. And that 200 to 400 a day. But, oh, but I can't go to work, can I? Right. I'm work. And most ah. of these most of these trials will let's say you do a trial and you get sick and you can't go to your regular job because the drugs or the treatments and the trials made you sick. Most of these trials will not pay you for wages lost if you have to miss work because you got sick. Oh man. They also um, won't they also won't pay for any extra medical care that you need most of the time. So if you whoa, get whoa, whoa, sick whoa, whoa. Yeah, if you get sick from one of the medicines and you need extra medical care, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the research study does not pay for that. So if it causes, so if, let me get this straight. So if the treatment causes a, a problem, 
a, a further problem, you don't, you're not compensated for that further problem. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. So, oh, can I actually ask a question? Yeah. Guinea pigging, right? That term guinea pigging, um, you've been using it as a verb. That's, that's, that's a colloquialism that, that actually is a thing? That's the slang. That's what they call it. Sometimes they just call themselves professionals for short. Sometimes they call themselves professional guinea pigs for short. But the act of participating in trials as your main source of income is called guinea pigging. We don't call it that. The health people don't call it that. We call them paid volunteers. (laughs) I would hope not. I would hope not. So I'm assuming, I'm assuming that at one point or another, guinea pigs were actually used for things like this. That's actually a bit of, that's not necessarily all the way entirely true. The animals that get used vary based on what you're studying and based on the type, the type of question you're trying to answer. So Let's say you are trying to figure out the highest possible dose of a drug you can give someone before it becomes toxic. Your animal model at first will probably be a rodent. So it might not have to be a guinea pig, but it could be a mouse, a rat. Step two though, is you need to go into a bigger animal model. So the next step would probably be a dog. Oh no. And then, yeah, beagles especially because of their temperament. They're very nice and trusting and they'll let you do things to them. Uh, Oh, rabbits are other rodents that we use. I say we. I am part of the... I am part of the... Yeah, I'm part of that problem. You're part of the establishment. You're part of the establishment now, yeah. Rabbits are are other rodents that we use. Um, And then we also use even larger mammals. Uh, You probably heard about chimps. Yeah, planet, planet. That's how Planet of the Apes with Caesar. That's how Caesar, you know, ended up taking over. Yeah. Well, by conservative estimates, we won't be there for another seventy-four years. But that's a totally different episode. So, ah, man, can I can, can I be on that one? <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna do that episode. Um, I got to get through that alien preparedness episode because that one's that one's been a lot of work, but it should be a good one. Anyway, that okay. goes back to your original question of, you know, we call it guinea pigging, but we use plenty of animals. We don't even always use animals. Sometimes we use single cell organisms like amoebas. And uh, sometimes we'll experiment on bacterias, viruses. Sometimes we use viruses to infect bacteria. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 Have, you, have you done any of this yet? Because you keep saying we. I know you said you're part of the, the, the establishment, uh... but... I was, okay, not, well, I was not doing that. Oh, yes, I was doing that last week. We went way off topic. But uh, we're doing an experiment in our biology lab where we are looking at uh, antibiotic-resistant bacterias or bacterias that develop mutations that allow them to not die when you apply antibiotics. <laughs> so we went around, oh. yeah, we went around collecting soil samples and we went through this very long process of whatever I just said woke up Siri. Siri, I heard. <laughs> Soil samples. Can you hear that? Yes. 
What a weirdo. Okay. She was just too jealous not to be part of this episode. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> to, to bring that home, we were we collected uh, we collected soil samples, um, including ones near our hospital, and we put them through these very long processes where we were trying to get the bacteria out of the soil. And then okay. we, we put the soil on dishes so that we could see what happened when we put antibiotics on there. And we were trying to see if um, if they died, basically. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah, we uh, killed things on purpose. And the ones that didn't die during the experiment, we killed later with bleach. Okay, so so let's... Let's bring this back. So, like yeah. you said, we've gotten off, off topic, and this is going to a dark place now. Um, yeah. So you you asked me how much money it would it would take for me to be part of the, one of these these trials, and then I, I just took you to the dark side. So let's go back there. <laughs> how much how much money? Like I'm I, let's say I'm the researcher. I want you part of my antibiotic resistance trial. Make me an offer. What do I have to pay you? All right, so now I am a new guinea. I'm sorry, I'm a new professional, so I can't. I don't feel like I can set a high rate. So I, I feel that that three hundred dollars a day is what I want. Actually, and I, and that's, yes, you're healthy. You don't smoke, and oh, you know what? I'd probably pay you more for if you were female. You're male, so <sighs> I'm gonna knock the price down a little bit. There's a problem in research where we test things on men more than we test things on women. Then when the treatments come out, we don't have as good of an idea of how the treatments affect women because we don't test on women as much as we test on men. Is that because of the, the, the participants you receive or or what? Uh, it's for a lot of reasons. We especially don't test on pregnant women. We don't test on I, women I, who could possibly at some point become pregnant. Okay. It's a... Uh, so I'm gonna knock you down to two hundred fifty dollars counter offer. Two fifty, ah. Per man. day. Um, per day, and it, do am I taxed on this? I don't know. I don't know because. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to look that up later because people who guinea pig as their job consider it like their regular full time job, but mm. they don't have employee protections like other employees do. So they are not entitled to benefits in any kind of way. They don't have unions. And I wonder if their taxes are not withheld. Probably not. So they're probably, yeah, they're probably independent contractors. And I wonder mm -hmm. if the people conducting the studies, like give them 1099s. That sounds like more work than people would actually do. You know what? I'll bet they don't pay taxes. And I'll tell you why, right after you give me your dollar amount. Ah uh, well, you you've already counted countered me two fifty, so I'm gonna say two seventy five. Why? Why are you worth two seventy five to me? <laughs> <laughs> because I just learned today. I just learned today how much I can make, and so I'm trying to I'm trying to set a, a good price. And you told me two fifty, so I'm like, all right, you don't want to pay me. You really don't want to pay me two fifty. You probably only want to pay me three hundred. So I'm going to keep going until we get to a. I'm a bad negotiator. Um. <laughs> okay, two twenty-five. It is final offer. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, fine. Here, take these pills. Make sure you vomit in the bucket if you need to vomit, so that we can see how much of that pill got digested. Please don't vomit in the toilet. Why can't I vomit in the toilet? We need to see how much of the pill got digested. Oh, that's right. 
That really happens. I think it was a Temple University study. They were testing. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I found that just uh, for you. Thank you. Uh, they were, I think, I think they were working on some kind of treatment for alcohol poisoning or hangovers. And so the people in the study had to drink lots and lots of alcohol. And then they had to, to try out the pill to see if they felt better. But they were drinking a lot and vomiting. And sometimes medicines can make you vomit. And so they were vomiting a lot and having to get blood work done. And they were instructed, you know, if you can, please vomit in the bucket. Please don't vomit in the toilet because we need to see how much of this pill made it into your system before you yacked it back up. So they gave wow. them buckets. Go owls. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is the reason why I think probably I will not withhold taxes from the check that I give you to be in my study. Yeah, they probably just paid them in cash. Well, they'll often write checks, but... We had talked before about regulations and how not all of the studies are held to the same regulations. Part of the reason why is because it used to be that studies were mostly done by hospitals, academic institutions, places that have to follow the government's rules about how they treat people and about how they run their studies. But then somebody figured out they could make money by offering to do the research for the hospital, do the research for the university. And so what came out of that was this new thing called a private clinical research organization. And they basically exist to let you outsource your research. And at this point, more than 70% of first in-man trials are done by these clinical research organizations. So they basically come to you. Let's say now you're the, the person who invented the drug or the treatment. Yes. They come to you and they say, look, we know you have a patent. We know you want to get this drug to market as soon as possible so that you can sell as long as possible before that patent runs out. We will help you. We will do your study quickly. We will get the best research participants we will take care of everything. We will do all of the review applications so that we can get approval to do these studies. And by the way, we will do it a little cheaper than our competition. Well, that's important. So if you have a drug or a new treatment you invented, heck yeah, you want these people to help you out by helping to do, do your research for you. And it's, it's such an attractive offer that uh, less than 10 years ago, this whole clinical research organization industry was a $20 billion a year industry. They ran about 9,000 trials that year with more than 2 million participants in that year in more than 115 countries around the world. And that was then. It's, it's just grown since. And they're doing research around the world, but that doesn't mean they're making treatments for people around the world. They will take their research projects to other countries because there's less regulation, but because they don't have to pay the participants as much. So this way they guarantee, okay, okay. They guarantee all the promises that they made to you. We can do it quickly. We can do it, we can do it cheaply. We can do it and get you a lot of participants. 
don't worry about a thing. We will take care of it in Botswana. Again, I came into this completely, completely uneducated and unversed. And so I'm learning all of this as you're talking and it's just kind of just blowing my mind. Um, and for some reason, as we were talking, I didn't even consider the fact that they would do, you know, that this happens all over the world. And, it, and that's actually somewhat terrifying considering some of the some of the conditions and some of the socioeconomic conditions in other parts of the world, too. So you're going to get to eventually who is conducting these studies, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or not. So I guess that's where you're going. So I'm going to let you go. Well, if you invented a new drug <laughs> in your pharmaceutical company, you might outsource your research to one of these clinical research organizations. But hospitals can do it. Universities can do it. It really doesn't matter whose invention it is, whose drug it is. Anybody can use one of these sort of commercial research options. Because I think what really happens is the, bi the business model part comes in once we start trying to run a health project like a money-making project. Which is yeah. what, which is what these commercial, or what what these clinical research organizations basically do, and you can tell that right off the bat when they're talking about we'll do it quickly, we'll do it cheaply, we'll do it so that you can get your patent uh, protected for longer, um, which is kind of messed up because sometimes these people will participate in these studies, right, and they're all excited because they think they're making a contribution to society. Maybe somebody one day will not get cancer because I'm helping with a study for this cancer drug. But a lot of times when people are doing shitty, shady, businessy things, they are not actually testing new or groundbreaking drugs. They are testing copies of drugs that they already own because if they release it again, they can get more patent protection or they can enhance their market share. Oh man, so they're trying to, so what you're saying is it's, it's, so they're trying to like essentially flood the market with a bunch of, now are these exact copies of the same, the same drugs? So this is why you're allowed to get a second patent for the same drug. In chemistry, we have what are called isomers. And it means that you might have a drug which is made of molecules and they're arranged in a certain order but the isomer of that molecule has all the same ingredients except the molecules are arranged in a different order. The patent is based on how the molecule is arranged. So if you can figure out a way to switch around some of the parts of the molecule so that it's just different enough, you can get a new patent or extend your old patent. Like there are things you can do to enhance your patent protection because you changed the molecule. So I didn't have the I didn't have the greatest okay okay I didn't have the greatest I didn't have the greatest feeling about the pharmaceutical industry coming into this and now you're just making this work. Well, the important thing to remember is that the pharmaceutical, or some people call it the pharmaceutical industrial complex, you know, for-profit pharmaceuticals is only part of our pharmaceutical industry. So like, not. Everything that drug companies do is horrible. Not all drug companies are out to try and make all the possible money without actually helping society. 
I think we just hear about this stuff in the news and we just think these drug companies are just trying to screw us all for their bottom line, but they're just a segment of the overall health system. Okay. Did you see <laughs> Did you see The Constant Gardener, that movie? No. Okay, right after this, find that movie and watch it because The Constant Gardener is a movie about what we're talking about. All no, right. No, no spoilers. And uh, for people not on the East Coast, the word I said was gardener. Ah. A person who gardens. I know it sounded like I just said gardener. Yeah, like Jennifer Gardner. Okay. Um, I had another question. So, the the professionals. I'm going to call them professionals and not guinea pigs. I'm going to I'm going to be as PC as possible. Now, can they set their price determined on their experience with having? been in prior studies well even if they could they would have to take your word for it okay that's right that's right there's still no system and i don't necessarily think i don't think that you being in somebody else's trial would hurt you being in my trial so i would probably pay you the same amount regardless of whether you've been in other trials what i really care about is answering all the questions that i need to answer for the study of this treatment that I want to test. So I want the best participants who are going to be best matched to help me answer the question. So so what so what makes you what makes you the what makes you the best participant in the study? That depends on what people are testing for. So for example, we had talked about companies going overseas to do studies. Let's say that Temple University study we talked about with the hangover treatment wanted to test their hangover treatment in Asia. That would be a bad idea. Asian people appear to process alcohol differently. So if some Asian people came in to my study where I'm looking at alcohol, I might think maybe these people are not the best match for my study because their bodies are going to do something different their bodies would need a different kind of drug than the one that I'm prepared to test. So it, it wouldn't be a matter of saying that some people are better than others or some people's bodies are better suited for guinea pigging than others. It's really just a matter of getting a good match. And part of that comes from how the people doing the study recruit participants. And so some of those, some of those markets, some of those firms, those research firms probably do some of the work for them in those particular situations, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. okay. There, was a, there was a problem at one point, and, and we keep talking about all these problems and how shitty it is. A lot of the stuff we're talking about has led to laws and stricter rules. So, for example, now, if you want to be in a, in a study, you have to be able to prove that you have a home. So the study can no longer go into a homeless shelter. That's good, that's good. And tell you that you should be a part of research. Okay, so now I'm also assuming that these people, the professionals, they can't sue. I'm pretty sure that there's some kind of waiver they have to sign and they can't, you know, just basically re um, releasing all their rights to, to legal action and stuff like that, correct? Well, that varies from study to study. Again, there is no blanket standard for that yeah. stuff. There's like standards for like basic things that have to go in there and basic, basic uh, safety measures that have to be in place. But even if you did decide you wanted to sue, and there have been class action suits before where a bunch of participants get together and they sue as a group, 
but who can afford that? You know, you need to have a lawyer. And if you're so strapped that you need to pee in a cup and give your blood for a few hundred dollars, then maybe you can't get a lawyer. Maybe you don't have money for a lawyer. Because this is um, this is very, this is very interesting. And, I, and you know, so maybe the five second rule episode would have been less dark. <laughs> <laughs> Probably no, not. Because some studies will, you know, it's different for every study. Some studies will offer so much care that even if you don't need the money, maybe you just join the study because you want the free care. And that's a whole nother uh. thing, too. But not everyone can afford the care that they need. Maybe you have diabetes and there's some kind of trial about diabetes. And you know that at least in the short term, you can get checked out, you know, get some diabetes care and a little money to be part of the study. Just, I didn't expect this. <laughs> I didn't expect <laughs> this at all. <laughs> That's what and happens when you follow directions. <laughs> yes, yes. Is there a movement, is there anything that can be done that you know of that can lead to some type of maybe government set regulations for outside? Because you know, sometimes the government just has to step in for these studies that happen with private companies or with private hospitals. It's a slow process. Nothing happens quickly. Um, so, for example, there's this other problem with this research stuff where there is no requirement for you to publish your research results. So if a person volunteers for a study because they're hoping to help change the world in, I don't know, uh, dementia research, right? They join the study because they want to help cure dementia. If the study results don't come out the way the researchers hoped, they can throw all the data away and just start over with new conditions and start over with new participants and keep doing that until they get the results that they want. And it's a problem because we learn from the successes of these research projects, but we learn so much from the failures. We need to know what didn't work. We need to know what kind of patients didn't work and what kind of treatments didn't work. And for a long time, this was just happening all the time. People were just publishing what they felt like publishing. I think it's like 90% more likely that a study with good results will get published compared to a study with bad or unexpected results. But as a result, now you have movements like the all trials movement, where people are trying to make it so that legally all research studies have to be published before you start so that Everybody knows what you're about to study. Everyone knows when you're going to study and everyone knows what kind of results they can expect. And then you also have groups that do things like try and pull together all this data. So if you can imagine right now, we don't entirely know how many people get bad side effects from volunteering. So one thing that could be done is to try and centralize the data on that and that could be something that private institutions would be forced to participate in, the same as public institutions. And that would be a place where we could start. If we knew for a fact that only 2% of people who volunteer for these trials get sick, unless they do a second trial, and maybe that second trial raises the risk to 72% or something like that, then that gives us a place to work from. In terms of okay. what can we what can we do to make ethical decisions about how people's bodies are treated and about how people who sacrifice their time and their comfort for the rest of us 
get treated. And maybe maybe that could be recognized as as some type of like actual employment. Like these people are making contributions. Yeah. You know, these people, yeah. People are working on that too. They want it to be treated like any other kind of job. Yeah. But that's, that's, uh, that gets hairy for us because I think as a society, we're not necessarily comfortable with the idea that you can use your body as a kind of employment or that we, ah. pay, or that we pay people to experiment on them, which isn't what happens in clinical trial, but that's sort of what people imagine when they think of the idea of giving people money so that we can stick them with needles. Like, it's very important to us as a society that we consider these people as volunteers. And okay. that they are, they are not guinea pigs and that they're not being paid to give us their bodies. They're being reimbursed for their time and their inconvenience. So part of that is a moral shift. You know, can we be comfortable with the idea of paying people to be professional guinea pigs? What is the what is the stigma? Is there a stigma for these professionals? Or do how does society view them? So there are mixed there are mixed opinions. On the face of it, we probably definitely consider these people to be very, very important to developing new treatments and we can do the things that can be done to try and make it so that they have more access to the treatments that we're testing. On the other hand though, some people think that we should figure out other ways to do the testing altogether because the people who who volunteer for these first in man trials are healthy people. These are not the people that these treatments are actually for. And so some people argue that there are limits to what we even learn from these kinds of studies. And why can't we figure out other ways to get the same questions answered? The whole thing is complicated because you have the financial piece. You have the moral piece. Mor moral. M moral. Moral piece. I don't pronounce my R's deal with it. Ah, you're, ah, you're from Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are all these different pieces and there's all this interplay between all these different pieces and it makes it so that you can't fix one part of the situation without affecting and shifting all the other parts. So the solution would have to probably involve something where we get a satisfying solution for all of the different parts. Or at least give me my six thousand dollars to do my spinal tap. Yes, the, the six thousand dollars. Like, because I think what the biggest payout you said was four thousand. Oh, wait a minute! I have another question. I have another okay. question. Earlier, you mentioned um, they do computer trials. Computer models, yeah. Computer, computer models, models, yes. Yeah. What are those? Oh, so we can. <laughs> oh, I'll send you a fun YouTube video. We can do stuff like. Uh, Let's say we're looking at a bacteria or something or a DNA molecule. We can do models where we can predict their behavior over time through different conditions. Or we can do models where we predict what would happen to a particular molecule of a drug if we adjust certain things. Like I talked about switching things around, moving things. And it's important to be able to do that because the way a molecule is shaped or the way all the parts are arranged 
will actually affect its behavior and how it how it works and what it does inside our bodies. So ideally, we want to know about those things before we go putting them in people. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's actually, that leads me, I, I, I know the human body is complicated. And remember, I am, I mean, you know this, I'm the layperson here. So this question might sound ridiculous, but it would seem that we know enough about biology and enough about chemistry but maybe not necessarily enough about the human body where can't we just get to a point where we can do all these trials or all these tests, all this testing just with computer models? Some people say yes. Some people say, especially as we move more into artificial intelligence systems, that yes, we should be able to do more. The problem with that, though, is just because something acts a certain way in a computer or in a test tube or in a rat, doesn't mean it will act that way in a person, which is why mm -hmm. we even have first in trial or first in man trials. It would seem like we should be able to go straight from animals where we're testing if the drug will kill you. <laughs> yes. we, it seems like we should be able to go straight from there to the study where we're figuring out if this drug actually does treat the thing that we hope it will treat. But we can't. We cannot skip that step where we test to see if this drug does something we're not even expecting it to do. And that's 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 another that's another that's another episode. That's another episode. All right. That's on my Mark list. Mark me down for that one. Mark me down for that one too. And the Planet of the Apes episode. Go. No, the next one's not <laughs> apes. The next one is alien. Uh, the next one is alien prepared. Wait, no. No. When, whenever you do the Planet of the Apes episode, I want to come back and I want to talk about Caesar. I cannot do a Planet of the Apes episode. We don't have time travel. Thank you so much for listening, listening to all my uh, all my juicy hot gossip talk, all my juicy tidbits about people who let us use their bodies so that we can learn more about medicine. Yeah, and, and God bless these people, man. Um, the professionals out there in the world, if you're listening, I, I would like to personally thank you for some of the drugs that I have taken. Well, some of the prescription drugs I have taken in my life that have helped me. I, I, I don't take, I don't do recreational drugs, but some of the prescription drugs that I have used, I'm pretty sure there has been some research that has been, some trials that have been done by people. And I thank you if you are one of the people listening. And I doubt it because those drugs are older than me. Well, maybe not. Uh, you you might know people in your life who use birth control pills, and we tested birth control pills on people in other countries. Oh, man. I'm sorry. We need to end this on, like, a lighter note. <laughs> okay. We need to um, say, uh... Um... I would just say it's sometimes everything isn't always ideal the way that we get to the the, the advances that we make. And it is nice to know that there are people out there who are willing to get paid to do these things for us so that we don't have to. I also think it's nice that people are willing to listen to stuff like this to get aware and to learn more about these topics. Because if enough people know that this is happening, then people can start getting together and figuring out what can be done. What should we be fighting for in in our politics and in our laws and stuff. You know what I think we should do? I think people should listen to this episode. 
and they should write in and tell us what they think we should do to make to make first and man trials more fair. Yes. For, people, for the people who do the trials and for all of society. I agree. That is a much better answer and a much better suggestion than I could have given. And that's why you host the podcast. And I am just a dope <laughs> on the other end <laughs> talking about Planet of the Apes. Okay. Okay, I'm going to turn the recorder off now. All right, awesome. So now I can take my pants off again. So that was kind of fun. Hopefully you thought so too. Our chat about the quiet world of guinea pigging probably gave you a lot to think about, so I won't talk your ears off with too many more details, but there are a couple things I want to say before we finish up here. During our talk, I described a study where research participants were able to negotiate their payment up to $3,500 after the study they were in ran into their Christmas break. After reviewing the recording, I noticed that I misspoke when I mentioned that dollar amount. I double-checked and was able to confirm that the participants in that study actually got their payments raised to $4,150. There was also a point when I said that Asian people process alcohol differently, and when I said that, it may have sounded like I was suggesting all Asian people process alcohol differently. There is a genetic variation that can be found in people of Asian descent that affects enzymes used in processing alcohol, but it's a bit of an overstatement to imply that all Asian people have this genetic trait. In truth, it really only shows up in about 36% of people of East Asian descent, but that's still probably a big enough number to make researchers think twice before inviting these people to drink lots of alcohol for a first-in-man study. If a participant really does have this genetic variation, they could be at higher risk to get sick from alcohol. There was another time in our chat when I suggested that research studies with positive results get published 90% of the time. I double-checked this too, and the number is actually closer to 84.9%. Finally, towards the end of our talk, it may have seemed like guinea pigging has some serious problems with no equally serious solutions. The truth is that top scholars in the areas of bioethics and clinical research have been arguing about this for at least 15 years. Lots of them agree that treating research volunteering like a business transaction can have some pretty awful unintended consequences, but they don't seem to agree on what should be done about them. I found some expert opinions where folks argue that research volunteers should be treated like regular employees who get a living wage, including hazard pay, to make up for the risk that they take on when they join research studies. Other experts argue that volunteering in research studies should mean just that, volunteering for free and with only the joy of helping others to motivate people to join these studies. 
They feel that bringing money into the mix is what causes problems for research volunteers in the first place because it sort of perverts the role of research volunteers and the relationship they have with researchers. What do you think? If this is your first time hearing about guinea pigging, I encourage you to talk about it with your friends and family. Like Richard, you might be surprised by how the conversation plays out. And if you or someone you know is guinea pigging to make ends meet, I want you to know that there are people in the health system who are fighting to make things more comfortable for you. We appreciate the importance of what you're doing, and we know we haven't always gotten it right, but we can and will do better. I plan to follow this topic as any new laws or payment systems develop. If I hear anything worthwhile, I'll be sure to upload an update episode. Until then, stay tuned, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Health Science for the rest of us. If you like what you heard, be a pal and spread the love by sharing this podcast with a friend. If you're not sure how or if your friend just needs some help, you can both get some quick tips from our fun YouTube tutorial. Just tap on the link in the show notes from this episode. To learn more about the show in general or to see some pretty hilarious health memes and videos, stop by our website at healthscienceforeveryone.com. We're also on Facebook in the group section and on Twitter under the name Health Science Podcast. That's all one word. For a limited time, Health Science for the rest of us listeners can save 20% on all NZT products at my online store by entering the promo code DARK42TOWERBEAMSUNSHINESTRAIN. No, no, no. I told you we're not doing that. My apologies www.irisspecialtystoreforthingshumansbyclairhealth.com Iris! Sorry. I'm hitting the button now. Is that how my voice sounds?